0: For those of you who don't know me, uh, this strange face up here is named Dave Brown, and uh, I teach the adult Sunday school class. Right now we're going through Samuel. And as I was getting set up this morning, I was thinking maybe we could start with a question. This isn't a trick question. Think of a time when you did something wrong and you got caught. Think of a time when you did something wrong and you got caught. You know, this isn't a hard question. Think back to your childhood. Maybe you were told by your mom, don't eat that cookie because it'll spoil your appetite before dinner. I think that's a standard line that's in the mom handbook. And you saw that cookie and that cookie had your name written on it so you ate that cookie and then your mom comes in and she says did you eat that cookie and you put on your best innocent face and surprised look and it's why no?" as you quickly brush the crumbs off the couch onto the floor how did you feel? maybe a little bit guilty or maybe you told a little lie to keep from getting punished like the time when the policeman comes up to your window, you're rolling down the window and you say, hello, officer. And he says, do you know how fast you were driving? And you put on your, your best innocent face and surprised look. And you say, why no? When you know that what you had done is you'd set your cruise control at 69 in a 60 mile an hour zone. And you had the digital readout right in front of you that said 69. Have you ever done something, something wrong and got caught? Well, there was a time for me when I was in the third grade that I got caught cheating. My teacher would give us math tests periodically, actually pretty regularly. Uh, You know, addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. And we would take the test and then she allowed us to grade our own papers. So she put the answer key at the side of the room and when you finished your test, you'd go and you'd grade it against the answer key. Then she would collect the the papers at the end, and she would announce to the class the highest scores. So it's like, well, Susie got 100% today. Or Johnny got 100% today. It was never Dave got 100% today. (laughs) Well, one day, I did exceptionally well on the test. I actually got all of them right, but one. And I went up to grade my paper, and as I'm going through and I see, I missed one. I really wanted to get 100%. I really wanted to have my name announced in front of the class. So I, on the sly, changed my answer, right? The teacher collects the papers, and she announces the scores. She said, well, Dave Brown got 100% today. And everybody was shocked, number one. (laughs) But I was the only one in the class that got 100%. And there was a lot of smart kids in this class, the ones that usually got 100%. And they all missed one question. And it all had a different answer, and their different answer was the same. And so as, the, as a class, the teacher had us all work out this one problem. And sure enough, the answer on the answer key was wrong. <laughs> I originally had the right answer, and I changed it. Now, the teacher was very gracious. She didn't say, you cheated, Dave Brown. But I'll never forget the look of disappointment on her face. She wanted me to get 100% by hard work. She didn't want me to cheat. I felt convicted. Well, this morning we're going to take a look at the story when King David was convicted of wrongdoing. And his misbehavior was a little bit more serious than a speeding ticket or cheating on a test. He had committed adultery and murder. And worse yet, he did this when he was serving as the king of Israel, when he was a public servant for the people. We pick up this story in uh, Psalm 51. If you're using the Pew Bible, it'll be on page 404. While we're going there, you'll see that this psalm is divided into four sections. They're on the screen there. We have David's story, his confession to God, his petition to God, and the lesson that he learned from God. Let's take a look at the first section of this psalm. The first section of the psalm is found in the superscription. The superscription is the part right at the top. It says Psalm 51, and then it has some non-versed words below it. That's actually part of the Hebrew Bible. And it tells you uh, a little bit about the psalm. It's there to set the mood and to give us a reference point to the larger story. Well, the superscription in Psalm 51 says that this is a psalm of David. Well, who was David? David was a shepherd boy when he was originally coming on the scene. And he rose to be the king of Israel and unified Israel as a nation. This was a, a very important time in Israel's history. And David was chosen by God to be king and anointed king by the prophet Samuel. He spent about 15 years after this anointing running from the current king who was Saul, who was sitting on the throne. And in that 15 years, David was going through God's character development to build him up to be a man that is truly after his heart, after God's heart, that could lead God's people. He was probably, at the time of this story, he probably had been king and reigning in Jerusalem for at least three years. So it meant he would have been king reigning for about ten years. And he was probably in his 40s at this point. So he started out his career uh, as God's servant at about 15. And he was about 40 years old plus. Now we know that 40s are a very vulnerable time for men. This is when they have their midlife crisis. Right? So this is where the story picks up in the psalm. And this story is recorded in 2 Samuel... Uh, chapters 11 and 12, uh, you can look at that later, but I'll just tell you the story. The story begins with David sending his troops out to fight. The Ammonites, which is modern-day Jordan, had come against Israel, and so uh, Israel sent out their armies. David, however, instead of going out with his army, stayed back in Jerusalem. So the first thing we note in David's story is that he wasn't doing what God asked him to do. The king was asked to go out with his people and defend them against their enemies. So David was not doing what he was supposed to do. And because he wasn't doing what he was supposed to do, he probably didn't know what to do with himself. So it came a nice spring evening, and he couldn't get to sleep, so he decided to take a walk on the roof of his palace. Now, you might think that's kind of unusual, you take a walk on the roof. Well, in the Middle East... The houses there are all flat-roofed. And in the evening of the day, you have a breeze blowing. And so it's actually the most comfortable time, and the most comfortable place is on the roof. So you spend a lot of time on the roof. And as David's there on the roof of his palace, looking out over the roofs of the city of David, he sees this beautiful woman. And further, this beautiful woman is bathing on her roof. David is captured by lust, the lust of his eyes. And he inquires, who is this woman? And he finds out that she's Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of David's mighty men. And David takes this captured by lust to being enticed into sin. And he invites Bathsheba into his palace, and they have an affair. And as a result of this affair, Bathsheba gets pregnant she conceives a child well david knows now he can't conceal his sin this adultery the only way that he can conceal it is to marry Bathsheba, or to have uriah come home and sleep with his wife so that he'll think that the child is his so david hatches his plan he sends a message to uriah out with the men in the army he says come on home i've got a special task for you uriah comes home and He's thinking that he'll spend time with his wife. But Uriah is a very loyal and faithful servant. And so he says, there's no way that I'm going to go to my wife when the men of Israel are out camping in the field. So plan A didn't work. So David says, well, we'll go to plan B. I'll get them all liquored up. We'll get them all drunk. And the next thing you know, he'll be at home with his wife. Uriah gets drunk. But guess what? He remains loyal. He remains faithful. And he sleeps with David's servants. So finally David goes to plan C. He says, okay, I'm going to take Uriah out and marry Bathsheba. So he conspires to have Uriah go back to the front lines. And in the heat of battle, all the men will fall back. And Uriah will be out there at point, And he'll be killed by the enemy. And that's exactly what happened. And then when David gets the report of this, he thinks, yes, I can take Bathsheba as my wife. Nobody will ever know. This adultery and this murder setting uriah up will never be discovered but god knows so what does god do he sends his prophet nathan to david and nathan comes to david with a story it's a story of a rich man who selfishly takes from a poor man that which is not his he takes from the poor man uh, a sheep because the rich man doesn't want to sacrifice his own sheep so Nathan is telling this story, and as David hears about the injustice of it and the inequity of this rich man taking from the poor man what isn't even the, the rich man's to take, David gets really angry, he gets furious, and he says, that man should be killed, kill the man. And as soon as he says that, the prophet Nathan turns the table and he says, you are that man. David realizes that story of selfishness ...and taking what wasn't his was about him. And he's convicted. Convicted to the heart. That's all caught in that superscription. So what did David do? Well, let's take a look at Psalm 1. We understand that David made a confession before God. He was convicted and he confessed. Let's look at that confession. We see it in the first six verses of Psalm 51... David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. David begins with a confession. He's confessing what he knows to be true about God, and he's confessing what he knows to be true about himself. What does David know to be true about God? Well, we read here, as David's appealing to God's goodness, that he understands God to be unfailingly loving. And compassionate this word that's translated in the NIV, unfailing love is one of my favorite words in all the hebrew bible it's the word chesed and that probably means nothing to you but to me it describes the character of god's heart loving kindness is talking about god's goodness the depth of his love and his kindness towards his creation And David also appeals to God's great compassion. That's often translated tender mercy. So what you're seeing here is David's drawing a picture for you of the tender, soft side of God. The loving, kind, compassionate side. But David's not ignorant about God. He also reveals a little bit harder side. That God has a moral standard. That he reveals good and righteousness. We see that in verse 4 that God is proved right when he speaks. That idea of being proved right means that what he says is true and right, always. And further, God always judges rightly. He says you're justified when you judge. So David's confessing what he knows to be true about God. Well, what does David know is true about himself? Well, he knows that he has a sinful character and that as a result of that, that he feels guilty. He needs forgiveness and purification from sin. We see this in the, the first two verses. He says, blot out my transgressions, my wrongdoing. Now, this word blot out is a very interesting word. Now, some of the younger folks here may not understand this, but I'll bet you the older folks do. There was a product back in the days when we used typewriters that was called whiteout. And so you'd be typing along, and you would make a mistake. You would have an error in your text. And you'd pull out your bottle of whiteout, shake it up, and you would put that whiteout on top of the error. Now, that whiteout doesn't actually remove the error. And if you're really curious to know what the error is, you could scrape off that whiteout. But what it does is it covers it up. That's what David's talking about here. He's talking about put a cover over my wrongdoings. That, we understand, is the word forgiveness. He needs forgiveness. But he goes further. He says, you know, just covering it up isn't enough. He says, wash away all my iniquity or immorality and cleanse me from sin. What he needs is he needs purification. He needs being washed. And this word for wash is the same word that we would use today. You know, when we do our laundry, we take the laundry basket to the washing machine, we throw it in the the washer, we throw in some detergent, and we push a couple buttons and we walk away for a couple hours, right? Not like that. In this day, doing the laundry was labor intensive. You had your rock and your stick and your bucket of water and you would take your clothes and you would beat the dirt out of the clothes. I mean, how else is it going to get out except for you forcefully remove it? And that's what David's saying here. He's saying, wash away my iniquity. And cleanse me, that word cleanse, means to purify. In other words, it's completely removed. He wants his sin completely removed. He wants the, the memory of it covered, and he wants it completely removed. This is what he knows about his sinful character, that he needs forgiveness and purification. He also knows that he's violated the moral standard of God, and he feels guilty about that. You see that in the very next verse. He says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. That's his way of saying, I'm guilty, guilty, guilty. That's what he's feeling. He knows what he did. And further, he realized that he's failed to meet God's moral standard of goodness. We see that in the beginning of the fourth verse. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, when I first read that years ago, it's like, whoa, hold on a second here. What about Bathsheba and Uriah? Weren't they injured by David's sin? Absolutely. This verse is not saying that our sin doesn't injure other people. Absolutely, David's sin cost Uriah his life and defiled Bathsheba by adultery. What this is saying is that God has set a moral standard. You see that in the second part of the verse. And David had fallen short of that moral standard. He didn't just fall short of it, he completely broke it. That's what he's saying. I have sinned against God, I have fallen short of his moral standard, his goodness. David also knows about his depraved nature and the shame that it brings. Now, I use this word, depraved nature, it's a very hard word. What is depraved nature? Well, we read in verse 5, he says, Surely I was sinful at birth. Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. This idea of sinful at birth, what David's saying is, what he's confessing, is that he's not able to not sin. That he regularly acts against God's will. And that he was born that way. It's not possible for him not to sin. Now that doesn't mean that David is as bad as he can possibly be. We know that that's not true. But what it does mean is that without restraint... David will always choose the evil instead of the good. That he will regularly act against God's will. And that this is his nature. It's who he is. We call that depraved. Or fallen is another word. So when you hear the word fallen nature, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about an inward condition that describes this nature of of humanity. And further, we read in verse 6, he says, Surely you desire truth in my inner parts. And you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. What David is saying here is that he does not have an acceptable heart before God. He doesn't have a moral, good, and just heart as God desires. And also, he doesn't keep a relationship with God. There's no dialogue between him and God where God can teach him in his heart what God's will and way is. That he can know the wisdom of God. So you see here, David's confessing... What he knows to be true about God, that he's good, that he's loving, that he's compassionate. But he's also confessing what he knows to be true about himself, that he's sinful and that he's fallen. In short, David is in a bad way. He desperately needs some divine intervention. So he cries out to God with his petition for help. The first thing David needs is to be cleaned up. So he asks God to purify him. We read in verses 7 and 8 here, it says... Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Well, first thing I need to to question here is, what is hyssop? For those of you who don't know, hyssop is a kind of a woody herb. It grows all over the world, but it grows in the Mediterranean, and it has a very strong mint smell. In fact, it's a natural cleansing agent. So this may be what they have used when they did the laundry, right? When they washed you up. They would use this hyssop. And that's what he's asking. He's saying, cleanse me with hyssop. But he's not just asking to go out and pull a piece of hyssop. What he's asking is he's asking God to intervene in his life to remove the sin from him. He's asking for a deep heart cleansing. And he says, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. He knows that with this purification, with this cleansing, comes a relief from guilt, comes a wholeness the effect of sin affects not just our mind and our heart but our body and he knows that he needs to be restored to wholeness that his sin has actually taken that away from him in addition to needing this deep heart cleansing this purification he also needs forgiveness we read hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity again we see blot out if you've been cleansed from your sin Why would you need forgiveness? Because it's still in God's mind. God still remembers that sin. You still remember that sin. And what he's asking is that God not only remove the sin, purify him, cleanse him, but that he then forget all about that sin. And finally, David says, create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. This is the most important thing that David needs. He needs a change, not just in his sinful behavior, but he needs a change in his fallen heart, in his very nature. And the only person in all of creation that can do that is the one who created creation, is God. He's the only one capable and able to create a new heart within you. In addition to having a new heart, David recognizes that he needs to be acceptable in God's presence. He needs to have communion with God's very spirit. And that's what you see in verse 11. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. This isn't about losing your salvation or losing the Holy Spirit. It's about communion with God. This is the way it's supposed to be. When you have a new redeemed heart and you've been cleansed and you've been forgiven, you have communion with God. and He actually lives within you. David needs and asks God for purification, forgiveness, and a new pure heart. But further, David knows that he has defamed God by his sin. What he's done is actually Uh, brought shame to God's name. And Nathan points that out in the account as you read through chapter 12 of 2 Samuel, that the result of David's sin was known widely. And David wants to, to offer himself to make this situation better. He says, God, make me an example. Make me an example of your loving kindness through your salvation of me. And that's what we read. We read, then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Now, when I first read this years ago, I thought, now this sounds like a foxhole confession. You know what that is? That's when you're under fire, and everything's going wrong in your life, and you may actually not get out of it. And you cry out to God, save me, God, and I will dedicate the rest of my life to you. But that's not what David's saying here. He's recognizing that the result of his sin has actually cost God. And he's willing to give his life to restore that which he damaged in God's reputation. Well, David needs salvation. And he knows God will do it because he's been given a promise. You read about that in his dialogue with Nathan. We also need salvation. And we read about that promise to us in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And if you're using the, uh, the Pew Bible, that'll be on page 798. I'll go ahead and read it for you. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for us, for the ungodly very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die but God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us starts out by reminding us that when we were still powerless directly relates to David's condition he did not have the power to save himself he and we cannot purify ourselves from sin We can't gain forgiveness for our wrongdoings. We can't change our fallen nature or corrupted heart. We can't remove our guilt and our shame. However, God can remove our guilt and shame. He can create a new, uncorrupted, pure heart within us. And he can forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We read that this happened at just the right time that God died for the ungodly that just the right time means that this our sin did not catch God by surprise he knew that we would need salvation and he planned for Christ to come as our Savior that he comes to each of us individually when Paul wrote this passage in Romans 2000 years ago I hadn't been born obviously but he knew that God had a plan that at just the right time, Christ's death on the cross for the ungodly would bring my salvation. It was just the right time for me. And Paul wants us to understand that this isn't because we're particularly worthy. In fact, he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. We read about these heroic uh, feats on the battlefield, where a person will die for their friend or their comrade. But you don't hear about those sacrifices for the enemy. And that's what God did. In fact, we're called his enemies in a few verses down. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it was Christ's death on the cross that forgives our sins. So rather than God looking at our sin, he looks at his son. It's better than whiteout. Christ's death on the cross actually removes our sin. We read in 1 Peter chapter 2 where Peter says Christ actually bore our sins on the cross. The sins of you and me, our transgressions, our corrupt nature was put on Christ. And he took our penalty. Christ's death on the cross actually removes our sin. Christ's death on the cross gives us new life. It gives us a new heart. It actually changes our nature. You hear that when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3 of John. He says you must be born again, born from above, because there isn't life in any other place. You need to have this new heart, and it's only through Jesus and his death on the cross. It's that heart, that new heart, that is in communion with God through the Holy Spirit. It's that new heart that actually shares in God's life, his eternal life. And we see that throughout scripture. What we see is that God's incomprehensible, steadfast love actually saves us. So, what did David learn from all of this moral failure? What does God require of David? What does God require of us? Well, we read in verses 16 and 17, David says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken contrite heart. O God, you will not despise this. What David is saying is that there is nothing that we can bring to God to make ourselves worthy. If it was possible, we would do it. If it was possible, he would have done it. But it's not possible. God needs to save us. Or we're not saved. But what God desires is a broken spirit and a contrite heart. What does that mean? It means that we need to confess our sins. The broken spirit is when we understand the depth of sin and depravity. And it upsets us like it upsets God. We actually agree with him about what he says about sin. And we need to repent from our sin. What that word repentance mean well it means to have a change of mind where you see the truth about who god is and you see the truth about who you are and you turn from yourself to god that's repentance that's that contrite heart that's what god desires for us god loves us his people and desires us to repent and trust in him for salvation so how about you this morning? Now, David was in a position where he was called a God, a man after God's own heart. He was a leader of the nation. And yet he fell. He sinned. He needed to be restored. He needed to be saved. You know, for some here, this is an old message. You've heard this before. How many people have told you, repent, sinner, you'll be saved. But for some, this may be brand new. For those that already know christ what do we take away from this i'll remind you david was serving the lord fully as king when he stepped out of what god asked him to do and into his own lust he fell from a very high place and what he learned in that was that he needed to be broken at all times about sin And repentant at all times about sin. His desire was to remain in God's presence. And he needed to draw near to God and confess his sin daily, hourly, minutely. Because that's how he draws near to God in the heart of God. For those of you that heard this message this morning with new ears. This message was for you, specifically. It's part of God's plan to save you. We read that in Romans. At just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Just the right time. That right time is now. It would be a shame if you left here today without asking God for a new heart. Without asking God for forgiveness and cleansing. I'd encourage you not to leave here without it. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord. It's a very convicting message, and uh, we know it is because David was busted. He was caught in sin. But he was always before you, and there was nothing that he did that would ever escape your sight. And the same is true for us, Lord. We know that when we transgress your law, when we sin against you, that you're keenly aware of it, that it actually hurts you, it disappoints you you are sad. But, Lord, we also know that in the midst of our rebellion and our ungodliness, you chose to save us for no other reason than your steadfast love. And, Lord, I thank you for that this morning. And I pray that everybody here would know your steadfast love and your presence. Thank you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. We're going to sing...